For me, fashion is a verb. So it's too fashion. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis with Claire Press. Welcome to a special edition of the podcast. Brought to you in addition to our regular programming. It's in two parts. Maybe you already listened to the mini pod that we designed to be as shareable as possible. If not, please do check that out and share it if you can. We're going to be talking about an issue that is currently galvanizing Australia, but wherever you're listening across the world, these stories are important to discover. It's obviously not just Australia that grapples with a legacy of colonization, is it? And if you care about sustainability, and I know you do, then the questions linked to all this are fundamental ones. They're about how we want to live in relation to one another and how we can heal and listen and unlearn to change systems that don't work anymore. Okay, why special episodes? Well, timing. I I basically got the opportunity to do this interview and I jumped on it this weekend because I want to do whatever I can to support the campaign to recognise the First Peoples of Australia in the Constitution. What Australians are being asked to vote on on October the 14th, 2023, in this referendum is actually simple. It's the recognition at last of Indigenous culture in this country's constitution and the establishment of a permanent advisory body that can advise governments on issues related to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. And that's going to result in better health, education, employment and housing outcomes for those communities. But actually, it lifts everyone. The voice is about respect, listening and coming together. And it's been designed and agreed on by so many different people in the Indigenous community, so many Indigenous leaders over many years. More than 80% of First Nations Australians support it. So everything else is just politics. But don't take my word for it. Listen to my guests. First, let's hear from Rachel Perkins, the film director, producer and screenwriter, who is the co-chair of the Yes 23 campaign. Rachel is a proud Arunde and Kalkadoon woman and a signatory to the Uluru Statement from the Heart, which is the cornerstone of this referendum that's asking Australians to recognise Indigenous culture in this country's constitution. I asked Rachel to read the Statement from the Heart to us, and we're so lucky that she made the time to do this for the podcast. Next, I sit down with Juno Jeems. Juno is one of Australia's most celebrated contemporary photographers, Born in Hungary, she moved here as a child. And in 1970, then a young artist, she spent six months living on country with Aboriginal communities at Uluru. And she went on to document First Nations activism and the civil rights movement in this country for five decades. She photographed many of the early protests led by Aboriginal activists in the 70s and 80s. She was there at the Uluru handback ceremony in 1985 and at the marches and activations around Bicentennial in 1988. And she was one of 10 photographers invited to document the National Apology in Canberra in 2008. Juno's stories of her friends from the movement are such a pleasure to listen to. And if, like me, you didn't know some of this history, now is a great time to rectify that. I'm grateful that Juno took the time to sit down with us ahead of the referendum and I hope that you'll enjoy listening to her and to Rachel. Please do share these podcasts with anyone that you think they might help. 
I've put links to useful resources in the show description. And of course, you can find more info on thewardrobecrisis.com and you can find me on Instagram at Mrs. Press and at The Wardrobe Crisis. Thank you for being here. I appreciate it so much. Okay, let's get into it. We gathered at the 2017 National Constitutional Convention, coming from all points of the southern sky, make this statement from the heart. Our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander tribes were the first sovereign nations of the Australian continent and its adjacent islands and possessed it under our own laws and customs. This our ancestors did, according to the reckoning of our culture, from the creation, according to the common law from time immemorial and according to science more than 60,000 years ago. This sovereignty is a spiritual notion the ancestral tie between the land, or Mother Nature, and the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who were born therefrom, remain attached thereto, and must one day return thither to be united with our ancestors. This link is the basis of the ownership of the soil, or better, of sovereignty. It has never been ceded or extinguished and coexists with the sovereignty of the Crown. How could it be otherwise? that people possessed a land for 60 millennia and this sacred link disappears from world history in merely the last 200 years? With substantive constitutional change and structural reform, we believe this ancient sovereignty can shine through as a fuller expression of Australia's nationhood. Proportionately, we are the most incarcerated people on the planet. We are not an innately criminal people. Our children are alienated from their families at unprecedented rates. This cannot be because we have no love for them. And our youth languish in detention in obscene numbers. They should be our hope for the future. These dimensions of our crisis tell plainly the structural nature of our problem. This is the torment of our powerlessness. We seek constitutional reform to empower our people and take a rightful place in our own country. When we have power over our destiny, our children will flourish. They will walk in two worlds, and their culture will be a gift to their country. We call for the establishment of a First Nations voice enshrined in the Constitution. Makarada is the culmination of our agenda, the coming together after a struggle. It captures our aspirations for a fair, and truthful relationship with the people of Australia and a better future for our children based on justice and self-determination. We seek a Makarata Commission to supervise a process of agreement-making between governments and First Nations and truth-telling about our history. In 1967, we were counted. In 2017, we seek to be heard. We leave base camp and start our trek across this vast country. We invite you to walk with us in a movement of the Australian people for a better future. Welcome to the podcast, Juno James. Hi. Thank you so much for joining me at my house. We're going to have a really important conversation about something that is very timely for Australian listeners, but I would also like our international listeners to understand We just heard Rachel Perkins reading from the Uluru Statement from the Heart. It's a 440-word statement. It's just one page, 
And it was agreed on in 2017 by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander leaders. It's the keystone document behind the upcoming voice referendum here in Australia, officially on October the 14th. Juno, you posted a video on Instagram the other day, which I shared, and you called the Uluru Statement from the Heart a most gracious invitation. Why? When you consider Australian history, the true Australian history, and one of the great things about this whole discussion that's going on now is that Australians are now facing their history. Every nation on earth has a conflict history, so do we, but it's been buried under an avalanche of guilt and shame. And now people are facing it. So when you listen to the Uluru Statement, you have to understand, I think, that considering what Aboriginal people have lived through, genocide, cruelty... uh, Dispossession. Dispossession insult and injury of every kind, and they in their gracious way have looked at this situation of people who don't know each other and they see the trauma in uh, non-Aboriginal people. And so they offer this document to us as a way of healing what has gone on in this country. So I think that in the light of that history, you can only see it as the most gracious invitation to us to now step up and support them. Absolutely. I wanted to sort of acknowledge that it can be difficult to talk to people about issues that you disagree with, whether they're people that you're close to in your family or they're people that you've just met. It it is difficult, right? But there's no escaping it. Or I wanted to say there shouldn't be. We can't hide from... If we only talk in an echo chamber and we don't talk to the people who disagree with us, we're never going to move forwards. There'll be lots of times in our lives when we have to do this. But with this question around the referendum in Australia right now, there's been a lot of misinformation and noise and mess. And I wanted just to share a few starting points. I tried to make sure that I was very well informed about what actually is in the Uluru Statement from the Heart. That's why I wanted to get Rachel to read it to us at the beginning of this podcast. I I wanted to read the background. What's it actually about? What is this referendum asking? Why? Why has it been brought forward? Who contributed to and agreed upon and helped write the statement from the heart. I also read the referendum booklet put out by the Australian Electoral Commission, and that includes the background for voting yes and voting no without any amendment from the Electoral Commissioner. And I've also got on the table between us, just in case we want to refer to it, I don't know. I just thought it was interesting. I've got the a copy of the Australian Constitution, which is short, document, easy, Like people think it's a giant thing that we couldn't possibly amend, but it's very, very short and to the point. And then I've got uh, a leaflet about all the details around the Yes campaign. I understand that people have been doing all this research, but actually I think the important thing, there are two documents that you need to focus on and only two. One is the Uluru Statement from the Heart. The second is the proposition on which we have to vote which asks for two things, the recognition of Aboriginal Australians in the Constitution, and people don't understand 
the immensity of that. Uh, in 40 years of working with Aboriginal people, I've never met an Aboriginal person who is not offended by the fact that they're not mentioned in the Constitution. So that's an enormously powerful statement, although people think it's not much. It actually is. It's a recognition and an acknowledgement. And the first respectful statement from this nation Aboriginal people would have heard. Mm. That's number one. Mm. Number two is that they're asking for a voice to be enshrined in the Constitution so that they can advise on matters that affect them, all the legislation, all the advice to all the Aboriginal organisations. I've never been in a community where people don't know what they need. They know it absolutely and specifically and government has never listened to them. So that is the second key. Those two documents are all you need to focus on. Do not get confused by all the hoopla, the noise, and complicating what is a very simple matter. Right. It is very simple, actually, when you bring it down to that. Yeah. I was thinking about how emotional this is for particularly First Nations Australians, but I feel emotional too, even though I don't have the right to feel that weight of yes, anger, you do. I reckon. Yes, you do. Do you think? Yes, you do, because what this is is a reckoning is a reckoning of the Australian people with the First Nations people. Why this is so important and why you're emotional about it, and so many of us are, because we sense that this is a moment of reckoning. And if it, if it doesn't come through as a yes, it will be quite difficult for a lot of people who mm -hmm. have suddenly, not you, but many people have suddenly woken up to a history they avoided, Oh, they don't want to look at it. There is this thing. That there's a thing amongst non-Indigenous Australians, and I, as a as a new arrival in this country relatively, I'm British, so obviously I've got that colonial past and weight on my history. But coming here, I was so surprised that there was this lack of discussion about it, a lack of acknowledgement. Australians love to say, oh, no, no, that's all behind us. We're not racist. No, no, no. No one wants to talk about it. Well, it's not no one, but there is... So that's not yes, fair. there has been a, a there has been a resistance, and 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 what Aboriginal people are trying to offer us is a leapfrog over the guilt and shame. Now I'm like you. I came here at the age of five from Hungary. I didn't speak a word of English when I arrived, but what I soon found, even at school in a boarding school in Mossvale, with pastoralist kids, and I come from a intellectual background of Hungarian thinkers. And so I started looking at Australia as sort of almost like a um, an anthropologist from Venus, you could say. And I was like, how does this country tick? How do these people think? And I saw these, I, I saw the history that was taught to me at school, a history teacher banging on for a week about three white boys who walked over the Blue Mountains and opened up the country for sheep. And I thought, wait a minute, what is this? Is this Disneyland or what? Every country on earth has a conflict history. And so I asked, started asking questions even then. So that is just part of my thinking. But 
you know, I realise that my uh, status as someone not born here gives me that freedom. Mm. I, I was, I wanted to raise the emotion because I've been, and I know lots of people I've spoken to feel the same, very upset by the the tone of the debate. What's going on right now around this? It's just harrowing, but also just upset that we can't seem to take the time to read the statement from the heart, cut it down to the very simple request that's being asked, that there's all this kind of misinformation out there. It's just upsetting. I feel like a lot of politicians and talkback radio hosts and right-wing media are letting us down. As a photographer who's worked... Can I just address yeah, that? Yeah. Well, I was going to ask you, how do you feel? Yeah, yeah. Having worked in... Unfortunately, this is not new. Having seen many and being involved in many Aboriginal campaigns, the return of Uluru, which took a 15-year legal battle, and as the Uluru ceremony for handing back was being taking place, a, a, a banner from the National Party was flown over Uluru saying, oh, Australians are not going to be able to access it. So the Liberal Party and the National Party and the Murdoch papers and the mining interests have all joined together to create as much confusion as possible. This should have not been uh, an issue at all. I know very well from Labor Party members how hard they tried to get a bipartisan approach to what is a very simple proposition. Mm. And they resisted it. And they resisted it for for self-interest, for mining interests, for um, spite, because they do not want the Labor Party to win this. Well, there is this feeling that the Prime Minister of Australia, Anthony Albanese, has made this his poster campaign. But the other statement from the heart to dates from way before he was Prime Minister, and yet there's this feeling of if you happen to hate Albanese, you happen to not like his face or his T-shirt or his politics, then it becomes this personal thing. And that's a shame, right? Well, it's totally beside the point. It's absolutely beside the point. And, I, you know, the way Albo, I was there on election night when he... Uh, you know, claimed his victory and the first thing he said was, I will do this. And he's doing it out of principle. Absolutely. And this is what we've been waiting for. This referendum cannot take place without a leader who stakes his life on it. And Albanese has been willing to do that where every Liberal Prime Minister for the last 10 years has shuffled it off to the dustbin in two seconds because they didn't have the moral fibre to stand by it. I think you're right, actually, and that's a chilling thought, isn't it? And and moral, it is a question of morality and doing the right thing, actually. Yeah. I want to just come back to Rachel Perkins's words. Rachel is a wonderful film director, but she's been very busy lately as the co-chair of the Yes 23 campaign. It's amazing that she read that out for us, so we thank her. Her father, Charles Perkins, was a formidable force in... Aboriginal activism, although I saw Rachel talk at this thing at the Art Gallery of New South Wales recently and she said he thought of himself first and foremost as a public servant. You you photographed him. I knew him very well. One of my mentors in Redfern was a great warrior called Chica Dixon. Chica 
was one of the most astute political commentators and activists and strategists I've ever known. And he worked very closely with Charlie, so I soon got to know him. And he was so kind to me always. And you see, I was, I, I felt the need to come in, but I was also co-opted because people kept on saying to me, there's only negative images of us. And I set about trying to re-jig the lens to be a tool for advocacy. And they recognised it and they said, yes, that's what we need. We need you here, there and everywhere. So, for example, a story about Charlie is... um, We were up at Uluru for the handback and I'd actually been quite ill, you know, before and I didn't know if I could get there and I was photographing for the Central Land Council. So, you know, I just got up out of my sickbed and went to the airport and got there. And as usual, I had not made plans for where to stay. The most important thing was to be there and to photograph. So I got there in time. I checked in with the Central Land Council. Shorty O'Neill, who was the media advisor, put me in the prime spot. And I'd been talking to other photographers from mainstream media and I said, you know, they'd all been up there for days sitting around the pool at Yulara and trying to find some way in and most of them didn't know what the Central Land Council was or who to speak to. Anyway, so I'd photographed my way through the day and at the end of the day, covered in red dust, I wandered into Yulara for a drink and Charlie saw me and he said, how are you? And I said, I'm fine. Wasn't it a great day? La, la, la. And he's like, where are you staying? And I said, oh, I'm, I'm, st- I'm camping at the campsite with Kathy Come Singh. And he said, no, you're not. And he called Joe Croft over, who worked with him. He said, get her a room. You're staying here. And it turned out that <laughs> that was Charlie. And so I had a room at Yulara and all of a sudden I was drinking with the photographers and they said, oh, that shorty O'Neill, he put us in a place where the sun was in our eyes and we couldn't see anything. Who's got it? And my little hand (laughs) went up. So we turned a bathroom at Yulara into a dark room and we processed the film right there and we were printing up all night and I was dialing out photographs. Wow. For listeners who may not know about the handover of Uluru back to traditional owners in 1985, Correct. can you please tell us what that meant and what it is? Uluru, Katajuta and Attila are three monumental sacred sites in the heart centre of the country. And before the invasion, I'm told by Pichinjara elders that people used to walk for years across country to get there to initiate their young. It's a really important sacred site for women as well as men. And for people who don't really know what it is, they can sense that this is a site comparable to the pyramids in Egypt. It is a It is a central sacred site and so there was a battle to have it returned to the traditional owners because when in 1970 I was making a film there with Mick Lachine, there was only one Aboriginal person there. They weren't allowed to be there. If you listen to this outside of Australia, you're going to know this iconic, 
amazing landscape. It's so famous when you look at the pictures of it. Well, but, Marcia, but, Marcia Langton made the point earlier on, and actually during the campaign for Uluru's return, that it's often visually used as a symbol to represent Australia. It was used in tourism all the time, you know, come and see the great... Come and climb on it. Uh, uh, yes, <laughs> that was disrespectful too, mm. but... So it was recognisable as a sacred site, but without taking into account its actual meaning and its function in Aboriginal society. So there was a 15-year battle, legal battle, with um, was led by a brilliant conservationist lawyer called Philip Toyne. 15 years it took Mm. to fight it out, to nut it out, and actually at the ceremony... There was a signing where it was handed over to the traditional owners at Mutijulu. They signed the documents. Three minutes later, they signed it over to the nation as a national park, but they sit on the board. Mm. And they are empowered now. I was invited back 25 years later and the change of atmosphere, the fact that Aboriginal people live at Mutujulu, come and go, it's theirs. You mentioned that you went there first in 1970. In sort of 1969, you were hanging around the Yellow House, which is an artistic... I wasn't hanging around the Yellow House. I was a founder member. I'm sorry. (laughs) I was going to say, which is an extremely fascinating art hub. The Yellow House was a, a cooperative of artists. Ian Reid bought... In Sydney. In Sydney, in Maclay Street, Ian Reid bought this building that had been um, a gallery and he offered it to my dear friend Martin Sharp. And Martin's hero was Van Gogh and he wanted to to create uh, an artist cooperative. So he sent out invitations to about half a dozen people, of which I was one, saying there's a room for you at the Yellow House. Come and let's create. I understand that you were going to go out there. You, you knew someone was going to go out there and make a film, and no, you said we, were, we yeah, we Mick can't. Bushid and I. That's what we. Mark, you spent five months, five months living six, out there, right? Six months camped in the desert. That can change you, and it changed me. Mick Lachine had a small grant to make an experimental film that was going to be based on Charles Mountford's recounting of the stories embedded in the monolith itself. So. What, what, what I ended up doing is research. He thought I'd do the sort of happenings and events I was doing in the past, but I didn't, wasn't interested in that anymore because I'd had this vision and a clarion call to find out what Aboriginal culture was about. So I decided at a certain point that it wasn't enough to read, no matter what, how learned I said, I, I said to Mick, I have to find the people who are the custodians of this story and see if they want this film made and if they want to work with us. Right. So that's what I went to do. And, in fact, they found me. They knew when I arrived in Alice Springs. Within three days I was sitting with the elders and discussing how we might do this. In camping with the traditional owners outside of Alice Springs in a fringe camp, So these were law holders. They were people holding up this body of knowledge against such insuperable odds. 
on the missions, which were reserves, which were like concentration camps, really, they were not allowed to speak their language. They were not allowed to practice their culture, which is why they were there. I asked them, I said, why are we here? Why are we not on, I won't name the missions around the place. And they said, that's why, because we want to speak our language. We want to practice our culture. We want to plan cultural events in the future, and we can only do it from here. And as I observed the way they did that and the life, and it was really hard. We were a mile from water. We, you know, it was a, a tough but camp, but nothing new to them. And once I realised what the situation was, and I realised that they were invisible, that most Australian people knew nothing about what was going on. And I thought it through and I thought, invisibility and silence are the tools of oppression. And a film is not going to do it because people see a film and they don't see a film. You know, 57 minutes. And so I thought, what can I do? And I started to see in terms of still images. That is actually why I became a photographer and how I became a photographer. You're only 20 or something, yeah? Uh, I was a little bit older. How old was I in 70? Um, something like that. Yeah, something like that. Yes, I was young. When did you start photographing the civil rights movement in this country? Well, it was early in the 70s. You know, once I'd made the film... Then I then I picked up a camera. I had to learn how to use it. I went to Grant Mudford. I went to Johnny Lewis. I went to my favourite photographers and said, "Okay, how do you do this?" Did you? Yes. Good on you. And um, and they showed you. Well, they showed me some things. Yeah, they showed me. You know, I mean, it was film in those days, black and white film, and you had to really know what you're doing. And not long after that, because the experience in Uluru was so life-changing, I felt I had to get out of the country for a while because I was really angry with it. Mm. I was angry. I, I absorbed some of the Aboriginal anger that was around me and I understood it. And I thought, yes, why is it like this? Why do we know nothing about these people? Why do we know nothing about this great culture that they are our host? This is their, our, their country. I want to find this quote. So I went to London and... Uh, incredibly, I got a grant to go to the Oxford Photographic Workshop with Aaron Siskin, Brian Hearn, some of the great English photographers. So I went to learn my medium and, I, and then I did a workshop with Lisette Medell. So I had an unusual training but it was a very brilliant one. In 2003, there was an exhibition of your work at the National Portrait Gallery, which then toured. It was titled Proof Portraits from the Movement, 1978 to 2003. I want to just share this review from Art in Australia, and then we could perhaps talk about it. So they said, documentary photography is not a satisfactory term when applied to James's work. Her photographs only partially relate to this tradition and to the concept of a camera with a conscience. She assembles photographic visual evidence in the form of illustrated history, and then it refers to the title of the exhibition and this idea of proof, and says, what's presented is a very partisan insider's portrait of the movement, where a sense of intimacy and empathy is established between the photographer and her subjects. 
Talk about the empathy and how you right. regarded well, it. Well, the empathy is a given. I felt it. I, I knew these were brilliant people and I felt myself so privileged to be with them. And so what I did was sort of like a very <laughs> deep immersion apprenticeship and I was learning from everybody. I would ask them um, questions. They would invite me to community meetings. People got to know me. They knew that I was curious and I was wanting to understand the history and the politics of the time I was in. And so it was a constant learning on my part and it involved a lot of humour and camaraderie and deep friendships, many of which are central to my life to this day. And so I, what I was doing, I was absolutely partisan. I was totally into advocacy and I wanted to reflect what they told me and taught me in those pictures. Were there First Nations, Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander photographers working at this time in this way? Truly no. Um, there was, Merv Bishop was the one. Merv was already working as a cadet at the Sydney Morning Herald first and then as a main photographer and I met him later and was friends to this day. And in 1982, um, Tiger Bales, Maureen Watson and some people here in Redfern said to me, oh, we like this thing you're doing. Can you set up a workshop? We want to learn how to do it. Really? Yeah. Awesome. So I did. I went to Chica, who was Chica Dixon, who was at this point chairman of the Aboriginal Arts Board. And I said to him, look, they want a, a photography workshop. Can you help me? And he said, yes. He said, how much do you think you need to set it up? He said, go and have a look at Black Theatre because they used to have a dark room in the basement. And I had a look and it was it was over, you know, it was not in a recoverable state. And then I went to Peter Kennedy at the Tin Sheds and I told him and he said, yes, you can do it here. We'll give you, how long do you want? And I said, I want a six-week block of time every week, the same time, Friday from two till six and I'm not going to teach it. I'm going to find a teacher for it, but I'm going to coordinate it. And that's what happened. And who turned up to that? Michael Riley. I don't know who Michael Riley is. My, Michael Riley is a great Aboriginal photographer. He's a genius photographer. I could see it in that workshop. He just turned the rules of printing upside down and made them work. And he had such a subtle intelligence and he, you have to look up his work, Michael Absolutely. Riley. For listeners who might not know, I wonder if you could do a, a brief job and tell us what is a tent to embassy, do you know? <laughs> In 1972, which was a time of really the Redfern Revolution where a lot of really uh, strident moves towards self-determination were coming out of Redfern. It was the period when the uh, Aboriginal Legal Service, Medical Service was established and there were a group of young uh, radical thinkers including Gary Foley, Gary Williams, uh, Billy Craigie, Chica Dixon, Charlie Perkins was a part of it. There was this ferment of what shall we do? What? How can we really move things? And somebody came up with this genius idea of creating they they felt there was there was no dialogue between Aboriginal people and Parliament. And so they had this genius idea 
of setting up an embassy, an Aboriginal embassy, opposite Parliament House in Canberra. So a group of young ones, there were four of them actually that came down and somebody lent them an umbrella and a little table and then somebody else lent them a tent and somebody painted an, uh, a sign saying Aboriginal Tent Embassy and they put it up on the lawn outside Parliament House. And this was just at the beginning of the Whitlam era. Whitlam had the daring and curiosity to go down and sit down with them and say, now what's all this about? Mm-hmm. What is it that you're wanting? And there are actually pictures in the in the National Library of Whitlam and members of the Tent Embassy whose numbers swelled very quickly having these dialogues. So the Tent Embassy was a focal point of national resistance that came out of right here, came out of Redfern, that placed uh, the principles of Aboriginal self-determination and the strategies of black power, if you like, on the table, on the lawn, opposite the parliament. It was daring, it was witty, it was funny, it was genius. I would just like to ask you about the exhibition after the tent embassy that opened at the Australian Centre for Photography in November 1982, so about six months after that happened, yeah? Yeah. Well, a photographer friend of mine, Wes Stacey, and his partner, Narelle, had come up with this genius idea to do a a sort of pictorial history of where we were at this moment. And so he worked together with Marcia Langton, who wrote the text for... Who was a student at the time, like a law student. We were all babies, we were all young ones. But he came around to my place. I'm the second largest contributor to this exhibition, Penny Tweedy and me. And so he looked through my whole archive and said, that one, that one, that one, that one, let's go in and print them up now. And so I printed up 17. We printed up together, actually. It was such fun. And so we put together this pictorial history that went from those painful early images right up to the present. And it was the first time uh, a visual history like that was put together with a really sharp one-line text by Marcia Langton that went all through it. And it was the first time an Aboriginal historian's view of history was put together with these images. Going right back then, how far back? Yeah, yeah, I went back to the 1850s. There's a book. Yeah, there's a book that you can't get. I know, I looked. I was like, I want to get this book. (laughs) I know, Valadon Press, it's so hard to find. Since you mentioned Marcia Langton, who if you are listening to this in Australia, you'll be very familiar with, and I love imagining her as a student writing this very very pithy, fantastic text. But there's a quote there that I got from a paper you sent me, Juno. She said, the easiest and most natural form of racism in representation is the act of making the other invisible. And she talked about this exhibition as a powerful corrective. We were great friends um, when she was a student and when I was beginning. Um, And she's actually now the head of Indigenous Studies at Monash University. And she's always um, been a really astute commentator 
as well as uh, a key activist in the movement. And she's always been a key commentator on the media and its portrayal of Aboriginal people. The crucial difference in the way I work is that I have been, I went in and I learned how to operate in slow time. So my first you know, I worked with Mornington Island dancers, the Woomera Mornington Island Culture Cooperative, for three years when my boy was very small. And we toured the States with a dance troupe, one of the first dance troupes whose mission was to educate children about Aboriginal culture by showing it to them. And my reward for looking after the women and children and photographing for them was to be invited back to Mornington for two to three months at a time. Wonderful. So then I learned the pace of life, even the pace of conversation. And there's rules there. And I learned those rules. And so I learned to operate in the same time as they did. I lived with them in community. I didn't live in white, some white enclave. I lived with the people. And so I really got to understand slow time and how not everything is made available to you straight away. And you have to be very patient sometimes for things to cohere and come together. But if you are... You are so rewarded. And so a photographer who blows in and blows out and comes in for an event and goes back with a roll of film is just not going to be able to reach those levels of subtlety. And it is a very complex culture and people have to get used to the idea that uh, Aboriginal way of dealing with information is different they're not going to tell you everything right away. They're not going to show you everything right away. You have to earn what you learn. Mm. Listening to you speak there so beautifully, and thank you, Juno, it made me think of how we can be allies and the importance of allyship, and I was thinking about that just coming back to the referendum. Indigenous Australians make up 3.8% of this nation. So without non-Indigenous Australians walking alongside them, listening taking the time to figure out how best to work with them, we're not going to make the change we need to change, right? But listening to you talk about the time, I think it's very... I'm always in a hurry, right? And that's quite a Western media thing. So when I think about what you'd said there about sometimes a supposedly documentary or reportage photographer is dispatched, go get it, come back on time, give us the picture. It's nothing like what you did. No, well, I, that's what, one of the things I learned. I mean, I was an impatient person too. I still am. But I'm not when I'm in, in among Aboriginal people because I've learned. Mm. I've learned and I, and I love that. But you go to a very important point and getting back to the referendum, I think it is an opportunity for us to realise that the, this question is not only about Aboriginal people. It's about us. It's about what sort of a country do we want this to be. Mm. And all my life, all my working life, I have longed for this moment. I've wanted to see this acknowledgement of Aboriginal people because it will benefit everybody so much. There's so much to be gained. But if we can do this... If we can respectfully acknowledge Aboriginal people in the way they have asked, and that's most 
important here. It's not from Albo. It's not from the Labor Party. It is from the Uluru Statement from the Heart. It is from 83% of the Aboriginal people in this country say this is a way to, to make things better for them and for us to be able to walk together. And if we have the humility mm. to answer that request and give up all the white noise nonsense about we know best and we can judge this and all that crap that is totally irrelevant now, we are talking about people who have a great ancient culture and who are the custodians of earth law. They know how to survive. They've survived in this country for 65,000 years. Not only that, they've survived 250 years of oppression. And out of the grace of their survival, they saw white people struggling with their guilt, struggling with, uh, you know, the discomfort of recognition of what actually went on here. And they are providing us with a graceful way to come together. Now, who cannot say yes to that? Who indeed? I don't want to end yet, Juno, without talking a little bit about some of the key figures in the activism movement in this country past, because we've got lots of younger listeners who may actually not know these stories. Mm. We talked about Charlie Perkins, and of course there are many more, but let's just talk a little bit about, because you photographed those protests that happened in 1982 in Brisbane, just before the Commonwealth Games. What was happening then? It was very interesting. Um, I was sent up there by Roberta Sykes, who was actually the editor of the first Indigenous newspaper called AIM, Kuribinda. Didn't know? See, I'm learning. Huh? I didn't know. I'm no, learning. No, very few people know about it. Um, it's a small newspaper that circulated among Aboriginal people and I loved it and I loved working with it and I loved working with Roberta Sykes. She was a phenomenal woman, phenomenal mind, imagination, kind, gorgeous. She and Mum Shirl, she were my mainstays. They were my mainstays. So they told me about this thing that was coming up, This that there was going to be the Commonwealth Games in Brisbane and they were going to use this opportunity to gather in Brisbane our most racist state at the time under Belkia Peterson and front uh, the most racist regime in the country because the whole world will be watching. That was our motto, the whole world is watching. So what it was was that Aboriginal people from all over the country... Thousands. Th in their thousands, took the risk to come into Brisbane, most of them staying in Musgrave Park, and every morning we would have a meeting in Musgrave Park where Marcia Langton, uh, Tiger Bales, Ross Wilson, a lot of people addressed the gang and said, the mob, and said, these are the circumstances you are liable to be arrested. We do have a bail fund coming. Who wants to march? Every day hands would go up. We marched every day. People were arrested the day started simply like... Simply for daring to march. Huh? Arrested simply for daring to be there. 
Yes, because they were illegal marches. You had to get a permit from the government. We had three legal marches and I think 10 illegal ones. But my earliest picture of that is actually Gough Whitlam with members of the NAC at Sydney Airport because he had a ticket to go to the African nations, which he gave to Michael Anderson. And so they went to lobby the African nations to boycott the games. So it was so dangerous every day Um, and we marched every day. It was a seminal moment in the sort of civil rights consciousness of this country. Absolutely. Um, Another one would have to be 1988 with the Bicentennial. I was going to actually say to you, because maybe if you're in Australia and you're listening to this, you've also been watching it. I was watching an ABC drama series called The Newsreader. It looks back at 80s Australia. You see these moments, which are sort of some of the iconic news moments, from silly things like Crocodile Dundee and Kylie to like... um, a dingo ate my baby, all those things. <laughs> but then there is this episode about 1988 and the bicentennial celebrations. It's very well done, this show. And you watch it and you just, oh, my God. Like, I, it's unbearable. You know, the, the the celebration is the kangaroo, all the white people going, yes, it's our birthday, as if nothing went before. And then the, the storyline is that the newsreader spends a lot of time trying to interview an Aboriginal activist and then it gets cut in favour of just Princess Di's fashion. But that time, 1988, the bicentennial of colonial settlement and Captain Cook's landings, right? What was it like at that time and what... It was very interesting. There were meetings at La Perouse chaired by uh, Cathy Singh and Linda Burney, actually. And the whole... Udgjurununaka was very salutary and wise as always. And she said, we won't celebrate, but we will educate. That was the theme. So Linda and Kathy and others, Foley, Gary Foley and other great leaders, were chairing meetings for half a year, if not a year, about how should we respond. People think that these marches just happen. In actual fact, there's deep thinking, planning, uh, strategizing around them. And 1988 presented a real dilemma for Aboriginal people, how to respond. And you saw Galroy Yunapingu, a whole contingent from Yungul lands, drove across the country to be there Gary uh, Foley led the march from Redfern Legal Service. So it was very carefully orchestrated. And when you're talking about having to accommodate thousands of people coming from remote communities into Sydney, and they were mainly camped out at La Perouse. And so there was a lot of preparation involved. But um, so... It was very strategically done. Mumshell ran uh, a tent embassy at Lady Macquarie's chair. There were strategic events all around Sydney, but the thing that astonished us was how many Australians came to support. I think it was something like 50,000 people. Really? It might have been more. Mm. 
there was this astonishment and euphoria that a, what started out as a protest movement had this growing support. There were unions, there were teachers' federations, there were children, there were school children, there were people from every walk of life who came out in support. You mentioned Mum Shirl. Just tell us about her work. Mum Shirl, Mrs Shirley Smith, was a Wiradjuri woman warrior, totally self-educated. She described herself as a mad Roman Catholic because she was very religious. And not only was she religious, she had the Catholic Church in the palm of her hand saying, being a good Catholic is not about going to church on Sunday. It's about looking around you and seeing people who have nothing and what can you do to help them. And There's a lovely photograph that you took of her on the steps of the parliament. I did a lot of work with her. I loved her deeply. You mentioned Udguru Nunakal, who was known before 1988 when she officially changed her name as Kath Walker. She was Australia's first Aboriginal published poet. I had not heard of this formidable force until I was researching this podcast, Juno. So thank you. We're going to share it. I watched some vintage footage of her reading her poem, The Dispossessed. It is, I mean, you'll cry your eyes out, but you must, must watch her read it. And afterwards, she then talks, and it's so relevant to what we're doing right now with this referendum. She talks about how she's like left and right, always fighting about what they think should happen to us. Why don't you just ask Aboriginal people? Absolutely. <gasps> Tell us something about her. She was extraordinary. She had a truly great intellect. And she wrote this book called We Are Going. And I think it's to this day the bestseller as a book of poetry ever. She had a campsite. She had a great friendship with the poet um, Judith Wright and uh, she got back for her a piece of land on Shrapag Island called Mungalba, which was her sitting down place. And I used to go and visit her there regularly. I loved going to visit her. She was wise totally self-educated again. She influenced people and she got them to think about these things very early. And she was a visionary. She was an absolute visionary. And she was very modest in her, the way she chose to live. And she was a total environmentalist. How was it photographing her? Well, you Did see, she not I, want to be photographed? No, I never got a no. And if I got a no, I put down my camera. It's my basic rule. I do not photograph anybody who does not want to be photographed. But what I found with Uj, and this was often the way of things, that, you know, I'd have my camera there and, you know, with these long conversations would ensue and I would wait for a moment that was a moment of connection between us visually. And she was just coming out of, she lived in a, um, a Winnebago on her land and she had her T-shirt on for the march and in her shorts and she was a fabulous-looking woman. And she saw me with her camera and she stood there for a moment and I just lifted my camera and it. there it was. Well, she, was she was inviting you. Yeah, yeah. Oh. It, was, it, you know, it was often I felt the images were given to me. I've got two more questions for you before we end on what's happening in Australia. I just, because you've mentioned 
that moment when you get to capture someone when they invite you to do so. Which... It's not capture. It's a oh, capture is the wrong word. Yeah, it sounds I hate like the you word capture. Them. Yeah, yeah. You know what it is? It's a, it's an act of of communication, of really deep connection, at its best. Doesn't always happen, but at its best, it's a communication between one person and another that's mediated through a lens. Do you know? Thank, I'm so glad that I said capture and you hit back at it because that's interesting, isn't it? It's yeah. a totally different approach. Yeah. Why do we say capture? Oh, it's just yeah. convenient. Mm. You know, it's part of photographic language too. You know, but the idea that we stole something, that we took it. Yeah, no, it's it's important to me. It's mm. not what how I work. All right, just tell us about the moment when you photographed James Baldwin. And this is very relevant, actually, because if we think about the civil rights movement globally and we think about what what is more widely known about how that movement grew in America. Well, what's very interesting is that... For people who don't know who he is, possible. Who was James Baldwin? Who was James Baldwin? I mean... James Baldwin was an African-American gay writer who was one of the major intellectuals in American culture who had the courage to uh, face America up with this inherent um, denial, racism that was inherent in um, its history of slavery. You photographed him in London in 1976. Yeah. He's wearing an Eve's... I mean, this is a fashion podcast, so at some point we're going to have to mention fashion, <laughs> and this is our moment. Oh, the, <laughs> he the, was wearing a the Saint, Saint Laurent safari suit. suit. Yeah, yeah, no. He loved his style. He was he a very elegant man. Mm. He was... A, and, and many Aboriginal people, even in those early days, were so elegant. Such an innate sense of style. Watch out. You know, Aboriginal fashion is just the cream on top of the cake, I'm telling you. But anyway, so James, so he was giving a talk at the ICA in London and I happened to be there at the time. It was when I was doing all that learning of my photography. And I went to that talk and incredibly Bobby Sykes was there too. We're the only two Australians in the audience. So he was giving one of those hair-curling lectures about being responsible about the way you use language. And he was doing an analysis of the Bible and how the word black is used in their dark. Oh, yeah. Threatening, evil, all those connotations, white, illumination, everything fine. So, you know, what the underpinnings of of racism really are and how he was cautioning us about how we use language, which is very salutary. I went up to him afterwards and uh, sort of a bit of a fangirl really because I adored his writing even then and I said, you know, I'm a young photographer, I'd love to do a, a portrait session with you and I work with Aboriginal people, I threw in. His eyes open wide and he said, of course, come tomorrow to the Athenian Hotel in Mayfair and I shall fit you in between the times and the observer. <laughs> so, he, so I went the next day and he had a minder called Joe who was also a very cool dude with his winkle pickers and shades mm-hmm. and little pork pie hat and we met in the foyer and had a drink and... 
then James appeared in this immaculate black Yves Saint Laurent uh, safari suit with a mother of pearl tiger pin <laughs> and ring on his hand and he was just the most elegant creature. And he says to me, have you ever been on the rooftop of the Athenium Hotel? And I said, no, James. I said, what a great idea. That would be great for us to go up there. He said, right, let's go. So we went up there and we had this marvellous conversation during, which is often how my portrait sitting goes, this endless conversation which is both me getting to know people and asking questions and relaxing us both until we're ready to interact really. And so... In this conversation comes up, he said, you know, I knew about the Aboriginal civil rights movement because they'd been writing to us in America since the 1930s. And I know from my friend, the eminent Indigenous historian John Maynard, who has written about this, that his grandfather, Fred Maynard, was writing to the civil rights movement in America. And I knew it from Mumshell too. She said to me, you know, the breakfast program that we're going to set up at Marawina, the ground plan for it comes from the civil rights movement in the States. What is the breakfast program? Giving a breakfast to Aboriginal kids whose parents couldn't afford a decent breakfast before they went to school because the Black Panther movement proved that if you give kids a decent breakfast, they're going to remember a little bit more about what they're being taught. Let's finish, reluctantly, because I wish we didn't have to, on this idea of a movement not being a moment, a long game, if you like. Correct. Before we were recording this, Juno, we talked about the possibility of the vote next week being no, which we don't want to see. But if we do see it, you said, well, it's not the end of anything, really. It's just one of the steps we have to take. Do you want to finish on hope and what you think, where you think we might find it? I think hope is essential now. And really... Let's go back to the Uluru Statement from the Heart. Let's go back to the proposition that is going to be before everyone. And what I would say to people is when you go into that booth, forget everything else except the proposition that is before you and with your best conscience answer it. Now to your question. Don't argue with people who have a who don't see it yet because they will eventually, is my view. And, and just keep encouraging them to step out of their fear, out of all this nonsense, misinformation. I think the referendum has opened this discussion. We can see this groundswell of goodwill of kindness, of wanting to know, of wanting to learn, of opening up to each other. And what we had before the referendum was only a small gang of privileged people like me who's had the good fortune to be and live among Aboriginal people. 
But now people are getting to know each other and if they're not getting to know each other, now they're wanting to. And on both sides there is this reaching out towards embracing each other and saying, we hold this country together, what do we want it to be? We can make it what we want it to be, which is an enhanced view of Australia that is inclusive, that gives up the privilege of joining hand with the oldest culture on earth and the, the people who hold it now. Let's go there. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. You can find the show notes for each episode over on our website, www.thewardrobecrisis.com. And that's where you can also sign up for our free sustainable fashion newsletters. I hope you've enjoyed the show. I'd love you to help us spread the word. Tell a friend, share on social media, or leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps new listeners find us on the app. You can get in touch with us on social media. The show is on Instagram at The Wardrobe Crisis, and I'm on there too. And on Twitter, I'm at Mrs. Press. Because I love you Because I love you